Hello, everybody. Welcome to MHTV. It's lovely to have you with us tonight. And tonight we're going to be talking about really interesting subjects. We're going to be thinking about trauma and we're thinking about addiction. And we have a fantastic guest for you. But before we go to our guest, let's go to Dave so that he can tell you how you can join in tonight because we'd love to hear from you. Dave? Thank you, Nikki. Yeah, hi, everyone. So as always, there's a couple of ways you can get involved in tonight's episode. The first is on the Facebook live feed. So obviously you can post your comments, questions, thoughts, uh, and we'll try and uh, filter in as many as we can uh, during tonight's episode. The other option is on Twitter. And obviously all you need to do on there is use the hashtag MHTV. We'll be searching for that hashtag during the episode. And again, we'll bring in uh, questions and comments through that route. But without further ado, as always, straight back to you, Nikki. Yeah, let's bring in our guest. Paul, can you introduce yourself, please? Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so my name is Paul Libuff, and I'm a nurse registered in the Netherlands and in the UK. So I graduated in 1994, worked in the UK, in the Netherlands for 10 years. And then in 2004, I came to Scotland and stuck around in the UK, specifically in the London area. And um, at the moment, I'm in, I'm in Vancouver Island, um, but I'm planning to return to the UK. And basically from the start of my nursing career, I started working in addictions. I had a kind of practice session during my nursing education in the addiction sector. And it fascinated me that much that I thought I want to know more about this, specifically because I felt there was a lot of misperception in the media about addiction. And I could sense some addiction tendencies in myself, although I had never been addicted myself to uh, any, any drugs or any behavior, but I could see the tendency of addictions in myself and in, and in people and the culture around me. So it has been kind of a, kind of a journey regarding developing myself more and more in this area and becoming more and more effective and understanding more about addiction and recovery. I think interesting in my own development was a pivotal moment um, about five years ago when I was working for the NHS in an alcohol assertive outreach team. And there was one client that I visited at home. Um, and no matter what we did regarding the toolkits available for kind of staff working in addiction, uh, there was no uh, improvement in our condition. And um, it came to a point where me and my manager at the time both said, well, this is all we can, we can bring to the table. And um, we, we, of course, will, will stay and support you. But um, yeah, the, the, there's nothing we can offer you at this moment. And the amazing thing is that from that moment onwards, um, me being able to stay in contact with her, um, she started to improve. And um, there was one last uh, shot for her to go into a detox rehab unit, which she wasn't able to complete in the past. Uh, but this this time she, she, could, she could do that. Um, and it was such a remarkable kind of change of events that uh, we were invited to even speak for the board of the of the Mosley Hospital, 
and uh, dis discuss what happens. And that that basically triggered into me a a search in in what happened there and and what happens if you are empty-handed as a nurse or as a practitioner with a with a client. And what came to surface is that the the quality of the relationship um, with a client um, is is absolutely relevant and is not as much appreciated or what nurtured as 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 we as we as we can um so that was a pivotal moment that started my journey of in addition to the cognitive behavioral skills that i have as a nurse and all the, the medication sites and uh, and, all, and the whole toolkit that is available, I started to look more into kind of the somatic sides of, of recovery and healing. And I, and I realized that we hardly um, basically use our, our body's intelligence for, for recovery. And, and what I mean by that is um, the whole field of, of trauma um, is coming is bringing to light that trauma is situated in the body, yeah. and that you can't talk your way out of that. <clears throat> you you can't rationalize your, your way out of that. So, um, as as we all know, trauma is a huge part of the clients I work with, and specifically in my in my last job when I was working kind of in Leeds. Um, I noticed with that perspective of trauma in the back of my mind that nine of out of 10 clients <clears throat> came in with a significant trauma history that hasn't been addressed appropriately. Um, so yeah, that that is that has been the passion now for me for the last five years. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it, it's such a relevant and timely conversation to be having. Um, if you don't mind, can we I draw you back to some of the things that you were talking to at the start? So one of the first yeah. things that really stood out to me was this idea about, you know, recognizing that experience in yourself, you know, almost the empathy. Uh, um, and one of the things I think that in the past, maybe nurses were taught, which I think is a real big failing, is to distance themselves and to say, right, I, I'm a nurse and I'm over here and the people on the other side of the glass, they're patients. And that's very different. You know, and yeah. you see it with... Um, Sometimes people who hear voices, the idea that you don't talk about, that you don't engage with that emotional side of it, you just look at the function, the task focus. And in some ways, that can feel easier, can't it, than having that kind of human connection and understanding that we're all frail and we're all broken in different ways. I wondered what your thoughts were on that, if you could expand perhaps a little bit more on it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, that's definitely the, the side of addiction work that is really important and not easy to access as it were so i think the, the big benefit of not going into your feelings and keeping everything kind of statically and under control and looking at numbers is like you say to create a distance between yourself and and the person that you're engaging with um, and I think there's very good reason for it. Uh, it's called victorious uh, tra trauma, so uh, vicarious trauma. So it means like that you, you pick up the, um, the emotional kind of experience of the people you are with um, 
on a level that is not at the cognition. So one, one really thing I learned um, in my kind of somatic courses is that basically our body is our first intervention. So it means <clears throat> that someone is really scanning you from, from the start and makes an assessment, whether it's safe or not safe, or when one has an opportunity to um, discuss certain topics with, with someone else by how that other person is, is able to relate to that. Um, so it has to do with being in touch with your own feelings and also being able to Breathing a little bit there, talking about vicarious trauma. Should we back with us in a moment? In, and, and so one of the things is to bear in mind, I think, when you're talking about vicarious trauma and the fact that it would be connecting to you on a physical level that Paul was saying is really interesting. Up to me, it's really interesting. It's this idea that you can... That you could almost have this experience without necessarily realizing you're doing it. So when you come home from a shift and you're absolutely exhausted and you're really stressed out and tired, um, you can think that it's just physical exhaustion, whereas in fact it can actually be um, emotional trauma or emotional difficulty. And I think what Paul was saying about the fact that, that trauma is in the body as well is so interesting and so important. I think the other thing as well as this task focus, Paul, I was just guessing what it was you were about to say. So <laughs> saying about um, yeah. one of the things about task focused yeah. working is that um, if we if you're in a situation where you're not having supervision, I can absolutely understand why people avoid that real um, emotional engagement, because if there's no way to really process it, um, it can be really anxiety provoking. Um, Paul, I was just saying you, you cut out about 20 seconds ago. So if we could have from about 20 seconds back, hit us with that. That'd be great. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So um, what I mentioned is that uh, one of the lines that I, one of the experiences I really um, took to heart is that our, our body is our, is our first intervention. Mm -hmm. So it is about how, how, how comfortable are we in uh, comfortable situations and, and how, how are we able to process ourselves and that is kind of a capacity, kind of a muscle that, that we can uh, train and develop ourselves. And that, all nat that also naturally occurs when we're able to feel safe with sharing um, difficult emotions with other people. So, yeah, the, the things and that... Well, Vancouver has gone again, it seems. That it makes trauma interesting. Paul, you might be better off turning your camera off to get a better signal. I think the other thing about kind of vicarious trauma is this, this experience that, that we don't always give enough emotional content to our workload. Um, when you get very task focused, it can be that you can tick off jobs one after another after another and feel oh, like you're no. doing a really good job. Sorry, Paul. Are you, have you, got, are you still there but with your camera switched off? Yes, I'm fantastic. Still here. Yeah. Just carry on then. <laughs> cool. 
You're freezing, I think, when you try and put your camera on. You're probably better off just having it off for a little while until your signal settles down. I think we've lost Paul again. <laughs> Never mind. So the other things that um, Paul is going to be talking about when he comes back, even if we have to record this and start again later on, would be talking about stigma and trauma. So he's already talked about vicarious trauma. So this idea that you can have trauma that happens without you realizing. Another thing I yeah, think... So another thing that you can think about is the fact that um, stigma can be reflected on workers without them necessarily picking up on that as well. Like we've all had that experience where we've been in an A&E department and we've been working with someone who's either addictions or complex needs in some way or mental distress um, and then getting a very difficult experience perhaps um, from our adult colleagues. That can often be because um, because that we're actually picking up on the stigma that our clients face all the time. Um, and that's something just to bear in mind when we actually do get around to getting pulled back again and talking about the kind of stigma and the impact that that has on people's care, on people's needs and on the way that we, we treat people. And I think it's really important as well. Another thing, just to pick up on, I know we've talked about it before as Paul's coming back to us, is thinking about um, uh, Felicity Stockwell's work on the unpopular patient. So if you haven't had a chance to look into that, it was a piece of work that came out in the 70s, but is really valuable and helpful in helping us to understand how different people get different types of care now um, and how we respond as, as nursing staff or health staff in general to people who maybe aren't grateful for our input, maybe aren't very, um, don't make us feel good about ourselves. And I think it's really important to consider when you're, when you're thinking about those kind of relationships you have with service users and clients and people who you're trying to help and people who, who you're trying to learn from at the same time is to remember that it, it is complicated, it is tricky, it is a challenge, and sometimes it doesn't go very smoothly. And I think one of the things for us to, to really think about is why that is. If there are certain characteristics that we find it harder to connect to, that's not a service user's fault. That's something that we need to work on. You know, people aren't here to make us feel good about ourselves. They're not here to make us feel effective as practitioners. Um, it's quite the other way around. So, Paul, I think you're back without your camera. We've got a lovely picture I'm of you there. Yeah. So if you wanted to carry on, we'd love to hear what you're going to say. Thank you. And, and I love what you what you just mentioned yourself, that it uh, can be really difficult to connect with other people and that it's not their fault, but that like it's it's our capacity to to develop, to be able to contain that. And um, I think it's, it's also one of the aspects of trauma, which is basically, well, the word trauma means like unhealed wound. Um, and in psychological trauma is about having experienced such an overwhelming situation that you have to kind of freeze it in a part of your kind of experience um, and not go there because, because of the overwhelming nature of it. Um, but And then hopefully at a later time when the safety has been returned, you can, you can kind of start healing that part again. Um, but it's, it's exactly um, when people are traumatized and they have experienced such an unsafe situation um, where they felt like a lack of control that, um, that they can 
react in ways that they find themselves hard to manage, manage because of that uh, perceived lack of safety and, and connection. So um, I think, and this is really important to link in with stigma. Um, stigma is something that has been around for a long time. But if you look at it from kind of central nervous system perspective, which has really been advocated by Stephen Porges, um, we have different uh, nerves in our body that are uh, that are really uh, first and foremost uh, scanning the environment for safety. Um, and the moment things feel unsafe, which can also be some triggers in the environment that are connected with the, the previous traumatic experience, the, the bodily is programmed to keep you away from that and to fight, flight, or freeze, basically. Um, and this is what I mean by, in the beginning, when I said that I felt that some elements of addictions that I recognize in myself, those kind of mechanisms that are basically uh, part of being human uh, and that are preconditioned, precognition, so they, they are acted out before we can think about it. Uh, those kind of um, mechanisms are definitely uh, keeping addiction alive and makes it so difficult for them to, to recover, specifically because our addiction serves on... Sounds gone, Paul. I think not uh, focused at the moment. Paul's talking about um, the difficulty of providing care when services are very much focused towards um, task focused um, and rather rather task focused rather than emotion focused. And it kind of feeds back to what Paul was saying about oh, at the start. You're freezing, Paul. Uh, one of the things this kind of focuses back on is the idea that timing happens when the, you get movement when the person feels safe, not when you want it. So when Paul was saying, you know, we were applying all this all this time and effort into supporting this this lady, and her she didn't move. Not until we then decided actually we don't have an agenda here. We don't have anything to do other than be kind and supportive and compassionate and try to understand this person's experience. That's when all of a sudden it unfroze and things started to move forward again. And I think what Paul's saying about that is, is really key. It's not about when you're ready to help someone stop or you're ready to help someone change. It's absolutely when they are in a space for it to be safe to do it. Often, and I, I can't speak for other people's experience on this, but often um, when people use substances, they are trying to manage that, exactly as Paul described, that trauma, that unhealed wound. And until somebody has other strategies or other options, they're going to keep trying to manage the way that they've always managed. And if you're trying to take away somebody's coping strategy without putting anything better in its place, how you're going to end up in a tug of war that's going to make that person feel desperate. So the first step to working with someone with substances is bringing your whole self to that encounter so that they can build trust in you. And Paul, are you back? Yeah, I'm back. Thanks. Thank oh, cool. Carry on then. <laughs> yeah. So looking at what happened in the last couple of months, like Dame Carol Black mm. put out a report, like an independent review about addiction services. Mm. And I'm very happy that she has picked up how important trauma is 
in relationship to addiction and that she also really stresses the importance for addiction services to provide trauma-informed care. Um, there's like, that, that part is like the, the cognitive part regarding putting things in place and making a review and um, putting in the goals to make that happen, which is definitely uh, absolutely relevant. There's another part that I uh, recognize myself in working in the UK, and that is kind of the idea that maybe as addiction services collectively, we are also traumatized in, in, in some way. And what I mean by that is there seems to be a lack of uh, perspective on how trauma has influenced the addiction services themselves. And, and one way I picked that up is basically two mechanisms that I that I really recognized um, in working in the UK. One is kind of overactivity, means like the, focus, the services are really focused on being very efficient, having um, short time slots, uh, having lots of clients, uh, huge caseloads, um, and that makes that staff is really basically um, working in kind of a crisis setting in trying to juggle everything that comes their way. Um, and, and the other one is kind of num numbness. Um, and, and with num numbness, I mean, um, really finding it very difficult to go into the feeling side of it, like, like you mentioned, Nikki, the, the empathy side. And um, also because of the burden is so high regarding the demand for addiction services and the shortage of services and, and staff. Uh, but the numbness and the overactivity are basically kind of increasing each other in a vicious circle because you can tell that you can start working harder and harder and harder. But if there's not, not a fundamental shift into stopping and reflecting and going into supervision, making time for supervision, um, and, and bringing the emotional side into play, um, it's, it's really a dead end where the effectiveness will suffer even more. There will be more staff burnout um, and, and really things have to change. And yeah, my experience is that it's already at a level that it's pretty much critical. Um, and and yeah, that, that is basically my assessment uh, at, at the moment regarding collective so, trauma. I'm smiling as you were saying that because I absolutely recognize it. But at the same time, I feel really sad and really angry about it as well because I think yeah. you're absolutely right. I don't think anyone in mental health services has been treated particularly well. But certainly the staff from drug and alcohol and addiction services have had particular stresses in terms of they've been seen as a service that could be privatized quite quickly, quite easily. Mm -hmm. um, they've had a lot of that kind of short-term contracts, devaluing of expertise. And also the absolute mistake of thinking activity is as good as, as outcome. It's easy to measure, isn't it, how many visits someone has done. And if you can say, oh, this person's done 20 visits today, everyone's like, oh, one effective service. But actually, yeah. that's not helping. I mean, you can run around and wave your arms a lot, but it doesn't necessarily lead to any improvement in the people that you're trying to support. So... I think that the idea about activity is interesting, and I, I can never decide if it happens because it's easy to measure and makes people yeah. feel like the service is effective, or if it happens because people feel that there aren't any other options, like activity is the only thing that we can do. Yeah. And I, 
what do you, what do you think? Why do you think this we're in this sort of situation? What's your take on well, it? Well, I think it's our alienation with with our with our with our body body also with our feelings in our body. So um, it is about looking at people um, ourselves also mm-hmm. as kind of as kind of an object or as a as a way that you that you can manage. Yeah. Um, so. I think we kind of lost our connection with our body and 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 the wisdom of our body, mm. um, and I think there's, I think the danger in in taking the turn that Dame Carol Black mentioned about things really have to change and we have to be trauma informed, yeah. really has to be included with an experiential um, understanding of what it means to kind of have a body and and how the impact of trauma is is affecting us all because you can see in our culture that there will be that there are different priorities being set um that are difficult to manage for the people who are less well off um and the big divides between the rich and the poor in in the UK and people who have a voice and who don't have a voice is uh, is, is tremendous. So it, it comes down of valuing everybody's uh, kind of position. And that's why I like basically the, 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 um, the report in Scotland about their trauma strategy in the mm-hmm. next uh, couple of years, where they say trauma is everybody's business. I think I love that. Because yeah. everybody is also like literally, trauma is situated in the body, mm. and we have to make everybody count in that mm. in that way. Mm. Yeah. Well, I didn't put you off too much, then, guys. Um, I just realised my battery was running down on my uh, laptop, and I had to make a decision between the lamp or the light or the PC. <laughs> I went with it. But I um I, I love what you're saying, and I really want to talk more about um collective trauma in a minute. But I can see we've got some questions coming in, and I want to grab them and pull them in before we lose one of us tonight. <laughs> so, Dave, what questions have we got? Oh, Nikki, you're doing such an amazing job tonight. Uh, so uh, Adrian's uh, thrown a question out. Really interesting conversation. How can we teach the skills of these empathetic skills? It takes a lot of energy and self-exploration. What could you advise junior nurses and healthcare staff to do to remain safe? Cool. Um, I think one of the really essential missing elements is the approach of Stephen Porges regarding the role of the central nervous system in our emotional self-regulation. Because it's something we all... um, are dealing with, and he makes he makes basically the unconscious conscious in the sense of you're able to track your own experience when things become pleasant or difficult or unbearable, and if you put that into a nervous system perspective, you um, know that there will be physiological um, actions you can take regarding breathing, for instance, um, or like taking the time to uh, basically feel your body, doing a body scan. Those are basically resets of your nervous system that enables you to take in more information and basically take a more balanced view about the situation. So um, I think it can't be stressed how easy our bodies are 
responding into a um, reactive state where we feel and have an immediate opinion about a certain topic. And by creating a bit of a distance between our experience and how we perceive our experience, that can make uh, the world of difference because we won't be kind of um, taken aback by our conditioned uh, responses. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, when you think about what causes trauma as well, if it's uh, physical mm. or sexual abuse, it makes things so much more difficult in terms of, of being in touch with your body as a positive space to be. As a lot of people yeah. do distance themselves from their body, they sometimes they hurt their body, and sometimes that's what their addiction is about, you know, the kind yeah. of idea about punishment yeah. and anger. And if you don't talk about these things, how do you move forward? But you have yeah, to you be can safe to do it. You can definitely see it also in a positive light. Your, mm. your body is able to, and has been able to manage all those difficult situations in the past um, by reacting as it does. Mm. Um, so there's an amazing survival mechanism at play because mm. I know for some people with addictions that yeah. going to addiction is basically the last station for mm. them to where, they, where they're able to turn towards. Mm. So um, it's kind of a last effort to, uh, to to create some kind of balance. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's there's definitely a wisdom in in addiction in, in that seen from a nervous system perspective. And I think how we think and talk about people who use our services is really important. Particularly, it takes you back to stigma. The amount of disrespect you hear, even from staff mm -hmm. towards people who struggle with this this experience. And really yeah. what you're looking at are ultimate survivors, really. You know, they are strong in ways that other people aren't because they're still here and still still engaged. So I think yeah. it's important for us to remember that. Dave, um, I know there's some more questions coming in. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Rory's posted a question. Is it trauma or the person's attributional style that is most important? Mm, that's a great question. And it really, really points to the fact that trauma is very different for different people. So um, the attribution style to, to deal with difficult situations is something basically you can't really choose, um, specifically when there's like overwhelming um, situations going on. It is like your body will automatically get into a survival um, state where it will deal with the situation one, one way or another. And everyone is different doing that in a way. So it doesn't really matter uh, what kind of strategy you have. You have to just work where the, where the person is at. Um, so I think one of, one of the main markers of trauma is basically stuff you can recognize in your own behavior or you can see in the behavior of someone else. Someone is tense, for instance, or have certain pressures in the body or uh, has pain or some themes are reoccurring, that's a tell, tell sign that, um, that there's some stuff to, um, to make space for. Yeah. And it's basically allowing um, a part of yourself that hasn't been acknowledged to be seen and integrated and cared for. Um, so habits you can change, but trauma you have to heal. So it's a very different process. It's not, a, it's not on a cognitive level. It's on a, it's on a somatic nervous system safety level. Yeah. 
Well, and uh, one from Michael Haslam. Uh, I know he's been watching a few episodes recently and has been very positive about us on Twitter. So thank you, Michael. Uh, he's saying that this is such an interesting topic tonight. Uh, earlier touching upon task-orientated versus trauma-informed care. How much are systemic pressures and priorities, for example, the four-hour target in A&E, barriers to compassionate responses? Yeah, I think that's that's a big challenge to kind of... I, I see it like the, the, the skin shedding of, um, of like an animal where you are still with one foot in a system that is that has been developed over many years and that definitely has its limitations and i can see more and more like the need for more and more focus on trauma so there is that balancing act of how do you manage and and provide space and care and empathy and safety um, in a situation where there's also like external pressures um, and basically what I can, from my own experience, I have to work in a way that I feel has been the right way to work in. <clears throat> and I, I really have been more and more trusting about my own experience and the importance of taking the moment as, as, it, as it presents. So the moment you have a connection with a, with a, with a client and you feel that is so important to stay with that client, um, then I would say trust your experience and, and, and take the measures and the pressures from the system as a guidance, but follow your intuition regarding what to do next. Um, so I think that's why it's so important for leaders and team managers uh, and organizational um, people to come on board and really realize uh, the importance of making um, uh, kind of time and putting procedures in place for people to provide a place that is healing and is fundamentally uh, working with uh, with clients. So yeah. I think if you if you keep letting yourself run by the external pressures of time constraint and uh, outcome measures, um, everyone will suffer in the end. Um, and it, it's the voice for the frontline workers, uh, making kind of it important for team managers and uh, leaders to hear what is needed on on the front line. And I would say make sure you kind of stay in touch with your own experience um, and, and follow your own intuition regarding what you feel is needed and, and trust that. Better be in a union if you're going to pull that kind of stuff, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any union. Other unions are available. <laughs> they are. Uh, yes, so uh, just uh, just to say hello to a few people that are joining in tonight, uh, we've got Victorious Victory, Vuovo, uh, Vida, Florence, uh, and uh, Agu, I think, is that Dan, maybe? Joseline, uh, Julian, so lots of people saying hello tonight. Uh, just to go back to another question, uh, you might have to help me with this one, Nikki. Uh, I hope this makes sense. 
How influential has the work of Gaber Mate been in your approaches to healthcare? You know what he means, Paul, right? <laughs> yeah, Gaber Mate. He's one of my, my heroes. Yeah. So his, 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 his line is, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. And um, he, he just launched a course called Compassionate Inquiry. And it is about asking people what happened to you instead of what is the problem. And it's really putting the, the person central uh, to any further um, kind of support that you that you take because the client knows best. And, and the client will have its reasons why he has been in the situation as he is. So it is about acknowledging the wisdom of the, um, the strategies that the client took in the past and um, and acknowledging kind of the vulnerability and the sensitivity that we all, all also are in. I mean, I think we under, underestimate how sensitive we all are and we pick up so many um, kind of impulses and and sensations. Um, and it's, 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 it's not taught to take that seriously and take time for them to really kind of sink in because all those sensations and all those experiences create some kind of wisdom and information in them. So it is about becoming more and more sensitive um, and, and at the same time um, being able to bear that. So one, one other quote of a hero from mine is Ken Wilber and he says, um, so it hurts more but it bothers it bothers you less. So it is about having that capacity to be to be kind of touched and 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 feel, but in in the perspective of the central nervous system by Stephen Porges and and the importance of being able to feel and take that into account um, in your relationship, you will notice that that will kind of uh, come and pass. But it's an essential component that we need to include in our work with uh, with people with addictions. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's so, and it's it's not easy as well, is it? That's the really difficult thing. When people, when other professionals, particularly people who are maybe more senior, who do this stuff automatically without necessarily articulating it, it can be very hard for people who are on the starting rungs of that journey mm-hmm. to, because mm-hmm. you can worry so much that you are infringing boundaries or doing something that's making it worse. And, and and if it looks like everybody else is fine and you're feeling sad sometimes or heartbroken for people or carrying their stress maybe without articulating it, it can make you feel like you're doing it wrong or you're just not cut out to be um, in this job when absolutely you're the right person for the job. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's a combination between mindfulness and bodyfulness that can help you kind of ground yourself more and more because all those uh, concerns and questions and and confusion is basically being also lost in, in your in your headspace. So getting back to how does your body feel? How does your breath feel? Um, taking a few deep breaths, stabilizing your central nervous system again. That gives you kind of the, the moment-to-moment um, resources to basically carry on. Yeah, and having the support of other people too. Yeah, to help you feel uncomfortable uncom- with discomfort. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know if, if Dave, you mentioned this. Alan Simpson um, mentioned about Felicity Stockwell um, saying how fantastic she is, and uh, she absolutely is, and also saying, if tweeting a link to her, her PDF. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Very helpful. 
And then we'll just talk to someone else who's come through now saying, um, Josephine, hi, Paul, what advice can you give me? Um, all the time thinking about um, a recent bereavement. So obviously there's a great deal of distress there um, and thinking about sharing conversations with somebody who's not alive anymore. Mm, yeah. Because I mean, and is this normal? I would say yes. It's yeah. Definitely normal. Definitely is normal. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. It's a way basically to cope with something that is, has been kind of overwhelming mm. and there's, there's no, there's no good or bad. It's like whatever whatever works for you. Um, and as long as you don't feel um, isolated, as long as you're able to speak with some someone else. Um, and yeah, it, it can really can bring up the big questions of life, like uh, life and death and bereavement, grief, dependency, um, relationships. So all those difficult situations for me are kind of an invitation to dive in a bit more deeply deeply uh, and acknowledging all the, the turmoil and the emotions that, that come with it. Uh, but it's so important not to feel alone and to reach out if you uh, if you feel you, uh, you you are alone and isolated because Absolutely. you are not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me with, with grief and bereavement, and they're all such personal things on one level, but there's something that happens to us all. You know, you can't get through life without feeling overwhelmed sometimes. And yeah. and it's so important to 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 appreciate the gift that it gives you, even though it's so painful and difficult, because it, it's yeah. the one thing that links us all together. We've all and, and to be nursed yeah. by someone who's never been in pain, I can't imagine anything worse. Yeah. You know, how how could somebody who's never experienced pain or loss or grief actually give something or or hit or be able to help somebody heal if they've never been through it themselves at all on any level. I mean I don't think you need to have terrible trauma or the same trauma as somebody else because I don't think that's possible. But there is something about the kind of nature of being a person that's sometimes a little bit about loss as well and grief and yeah. sadness as well as the happy times. You know you can't yeah. being strong isn't the same as being all right all the time. <laughs> that's not realistic. Mm -hmm. And also, I'd also be really wary of the word normal. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's anything to strive for. <laughs> Not really. Yeah. And I think the, the fear of death is really something that is mm. really prominent in our awareness all the time. Mm. And that probably is also one of the reasons that we don't like to be so comfortable in going into our bodies mm. because our body is a mortal instrument. Mm. Um, and... I think feeling and empathy and feeling vulnerable all kind of have those links with being a mortal being. And yeah, it, it it's kind of all connected in that sense of um, of letting that in and feeling overwhelmed uh, sometimes by it, mm -hmm. but also kind of grounding again and, uh, and learning from it. Definitely. I'm looking at the time and we've already gone 42 minutes. I don't know how we've managed that. That's just whizzed by. I guess we're going to have to to, to whip round and, and come to sort of like a final, not that you can have final thoughts on something like this, but think about how we're going to um, to leave this. So Dave, we'll come to you first. Is there anything that you particularly wanted to say? And Paul, if you can put your camera on, should we just take a chance on you being able to be seen before you disappear? Let's take a chance. <laughs> Let's do it. Roll that dice. Is there anything go you want to say, Dave? Any you, questions? You, I've certainly been challenged with my technological technological ability tonight, and that was just another curveball. I've had to swap screens again. Uh, it, it's just been a really interesting topic, hasn't it? And it's made me think about other episodes that we've done where we've discussed trauma-informed care. Uh, and it just made me think back to October last year 
uh, when we invited a panel from Scotland who uh, spoke about issues, including trauma from back then. Uh, and Jenny Young, who I know is based up in Scotland and has done lots of uh, amazing work around trauma-informed services. Uh, so I'd encourage, uh, you know, people that didn't see that episode, it was episode 21, uh, to, to look that one up. And I'm, I'm going to share a link from that tonight. Uh, in terms of uh, other things, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of say uh, about, you know, all the, the, the lecturers that are joining in tonight and just give them uh, solidarity from me and MHA. Because uh, a number of them have been on strike today, tomorrow, and on Friday with the UCU, uh, and you know, absolutely do an amazing job. So thank you to all the lecturers that are watching tonight that are on strike, because uh, you're amazing people. Uh, and yeah, and that, those are my thoughts, Nikki. <laughs> I guess that. <laughs> Paul, what about you? Is there anything you want to leave people with? Um, yeah, I would say don't be afraid. And you're even invited, I would say, to uh, learn more about trauma. And not only from a cognitive perspective, but also from an experiential perspective. Um, so there will be a, an upcoming trauma conference online starting in three days, which is free for the next 10, 10 days. So there's amazing resources um, available. Uh, I would highly um, recommend to look into those because I do feel it's like a really missing essential link in, in the addiction services at the moment. And we don't do our clients uh, enough uh, credit by, uh, by leaving that out and ourselves too uh, in, that, in that matter. Absolutely. I really think that's true. We've got our last couple of questions coming in. Do we over-medicalize at times the uh, human condition? Asked Riri. Yes, Riri, we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so thank you for that. And Alfonso, um, COVID-19 has certainly caused some trauma in people, um, extending, um, preventing people from living what a normal life is. So have you got any advice for people having a, a kind of really anxiety? So you said PTSD, but I think anxiety generally around um, people experiencing stress around COVID-19 and what would you consider to be a trauma-informed approach? So just letting yeah, you slide so in the last questions there. <laughs> Yeah, so anxiety can be seen as kind of a fight or flight response from your nervous system mm. regarding how, how to be as safe as you can. Mm. So there's nothing wrong with you. Um, your nervous system is just giving you information that there's some kind of uh, lack of safety that you experience to really relax yourself. So it might be worth first having a support network, but also maybe become curious about how does your anxiety feel in your body? Um, so looking at kind of a, a body uh, approach. Um, and yeah, there's so much more to say about this topic. There's, but I, I think the, the basic is anxiety, there's nothing wrong with you. It is information for you to pick up and, and learn from. And you can do that in several ways. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I would leave it with that for now. Yeah. Thank you so much, Paul, for your for your time tonight, and for battling through poor connections, sudden plunges into darkness. It's been fine, <laughs> and I think it just goes to show you, doesn't it, how resilient uh, people are who work in the sector. Just keep going, man. It's fine. <laughs> and I think we'll be tweeting out lots and lots of resources around this. Please, we'll also certainly be um, promoting this uh, conference in case you're interested in it. And I think we're going to need to come back to this subject in the new year, maybe look at some techniques and actually dig deeper into it. Hopefully with good communication, good connection and lights next time. 
try something Love new. To. Thank you guys so much for your support and encouragement tonight as ever. Take care and have a lovely evening. Bye-bye, guys. Thank you. Night-night. And well done, Nikki. You're amazing.